Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. If you subscribe to our podcast, you're going to get our full-length teachings. You're going to get our shorter content, which is hot topics. Uh, you're also going to get these Q&As. These Q&As are a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of Tucson. Um, we've been teaching the book of Revelation, and we've been teaching the book of Acts. We're almost done with the book of Revelation. This last week, we were in the book of Acts, and we covered the first Gentile to get saved. We just were introduced to him. Uh, We'll look at his salvation in our next week's study. But we talked about Cornelius, this centurion, having a fear of God. It says in the scriptures that he feared God, he gave alms, um, and and that he, um, he, he did good works. And that was because that was a result of his fear of God. And so I talked about what the fear of God is. And then I had a, a little bit of pushback later on from someone saying, if we're in a relationship with God, if we know him, if we love him, if things are right between us and God, then I really don't have to have a fear of God, do I? So here's what I would like to do. I would like to cover what I talked about on the fear of God. And then I want to address this pushback or this concern that someone had as to whether or not me as a as a Christian in a right relationship with God, a right standing with God, should have any fear of the Lord. So let me go ahead and put some things there up on the screen for you. First of all, what does it mean to fear God? Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So we fear God, and that's the beginning of wisdom. Now, Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but a fool despises wisdom and instruction. So we have it being the beginning of wisdom. We fear God. Now we make better choices. We fear God. Now we learn more about him. Okay. Now what does it mean to fear him? Some believe that the fear of the Lord is o- that it only means respect and reverence. Well, I have a respect for him. Well, I have reverence for him or awe that I'm just awestruck at the incredibleness of God. If we see God in all of his glory, first of all, we can't be alive and see that. And when we do see him, there's going to be an incredible, incredible amount of awe. I don't know what kind of things that you've been awestruck with, but in my life, I've been struck a few times with it, and it's pretty amazing. When you see something, uh, people talk about, I, we, I've never been to Niagara Falls, but people talk about seeing them and just being struck with the, the sheer power of those falls. Now, God is a judge and will judge everything that we do and think. He'll even judge us by the, the words that we say, and nothing is hidden from his eyes. Luke 2.13 says that whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever things in the ear in the inner room will be spoken, proclaimed on the roof, on the, on the housetops. The things we say are going to be judged, much less the things that we do. The Bible also says the things that we do in secret will be will be shouted from the rooftops. And so there should be a fear of God because he is a judge. He's a genuine judge. Now, this fear is not like the fear of a criminal or the fear of a rabid dog. It's the fear of a judge, like a judge that you might have to stand before. 
and, and he's going to judge on your life. I think that we should all have some good healthy fear. A criminal that doesn't have the healthy fear of a judge might find himself in more trouble than what he thinks. Ecclesiastes 3.17 says, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, and there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Listen to the words that Paul said to the church in Corinth. This is said to Christians. People have asked, even here on, the, on our Q&A, on our podcast, uh, will we as Christians be judged? Listen to what Paul said. For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, whether according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So this isn't just motives. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. Notice how Paul put it. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men that there really ought to be a terror of God. Now, we fear him like a righteous judge whom we must appear before. Matthew 10, 28 says, And do not fear those who can kill the body and the soul. But then Jesus said, But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both the body and the soul in hell. This isn't a reverence or this isn't a respect. This is the fear of having to stand before someone who's holy and pure and righteous, and I am not. Now, eternity hangs in the balance, and we want to get God right. We want to make sure that we have things right with Him, and a good, healthy fear of the Lord is a good thing, as we see here with Cornelius. Because he feared God, he did good things. He's not judged. God is not honoring him because of the good things that he did, but they went up as a memorial to him because by faith he had, had given alms. He was responding to the light that he was giving and the faith follows works. And so it's a good thing for us to have that fear. Now, after presenting that, that it's not just an awe, but it is actually a fear, then the idea with me as a Christian having a right standing with God, should I still have that kind of fear of God? And my answer is yes. Now there will come a time when we will be in his presence. He will come again and we'll meet him in the air and we'll be with him or we will die and to be absent from the body is to be present with him. I will no longer have a sin nature. I will have a spiritual body like Jesus and it will be incorruptible and, and, and immortal and I won't have a sin nature anymore. And my relationship with God is going to change. But right now, I still have a sin nature Maybe you don't think things you shouldn't think, but I still do and have to repent from them and have to ask God to forgive me. I still will respond in my flesh rather than in the spirit. And so I find myself still, even though I, I, I maintain, I want to maintain a, a short accounts with God and maintain a right relationship with him. Nevertheless, I still have a fear of the Lord. And I think that fear helps us to still walk with God the way we're supposed to. I understand what you're saying. We love God. We have a right relationship with him. But there still should be that fear that I've got a sin nature and I want to make sure I'm living properly for him. And if we have a good understanding of who God is and who we are, all we like sheep have gone astray, each has gone along his own way, then I do think it's a good thing for us to have the fear of the Lord. Now, maybe not like the terror of the Lord, like Paul was talking about uh, with non-believers, that because of the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Because otherwise, 
they will stand in front of the one who can kill, can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. All right. So if you have any more questions about the fear of the Lord or, 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 or you know, uh, a follow-up on that, just go ahead and put follow-up or question and then write out your question, whatever your question may be, and then um, reread it a couple times, make sure it makes sense, and then add the references and we'll be able to look them up. And I, just a reminder again, uh, this is a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary Tucson. So if you're in our studies and you're watching them or you're watching a study online or on YouTube or on Facebook because they're on there as well, and you've got questions, write those questions down and then you can come back on and say, I was listening to this study and you said this. And um, sometimes I'll say things that are, are, I just misspeak. And it's good sometimes when some people can point those things out. But it's good to see you guys. Good to have you here um, with us. We have our first question from uh, Fact Check These Hands. Fact Check These Hands says, um, uh, let me see, let me reduce this size a little bit. Let's see if I can do that. Uh, there we go. All right. So Fact Check These Hands says, I know many in the, in a ch in the Church of Christ. They believe the Holy Spirit only indwells them while they are reading the Bible. They believe it's work-based salvation. Are they truly saved? Um, I have no reason to try to judge whether someone is genuinely saved or not. So could there be someone in the Church of Christ who believes that you've got to be baptized by them in order to be saved? And they were baptized by them. But they've trusted in Christ, but they've got real genuine faith. And they're really saved. Um, the, the idea of believing the Holy Spirit only indwells them when they are reading the Bible. Uh, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say that that would put you outside of being a, a believer. Um, the way the Church of Christ comes to, to, to doctrine is different than the way that we do. So we look at, we look at the, what the Bible says, and we build doctrine by what the Bible says. And if the Bible doesn't say anything about it, then we look at the morality of the issue and try to connect it to the moral things the Bible says. So the Church of Christ, if the Bible's silent about something, they don't do it. So they come at it a completely different way. Um, and I did know someone who was in the Church of Christ, and I do not believe they were saved. They were trusting in baptism. And they did not have, I don't believe, a real relationship with Christ. I want to be careful not to judge people, but I believe there were certain revelations to me about this particular individual that I didn't believe that they were. Now, there are going to be tears in any group, right? But you, you can't be saved by works. And if you're teaching salvation by works, then that's not the gospel. And there are going to be less certainly less people who are saved when they believe, you know what, I got baptized, now I'm saved. And don't have the idea of surrendering to God and living for Him and trusting in Him by faith. Um, but they're boasting about it. I would not want to say that there are none of them that are saved though. So I hope that that's helpful. Um, I, I think the same thing with um, the Catholic Church. There 
are a lot of, they're, they're works-based salvation. You keep the sacraments in order to be saved. But there are many who believe in Christ. And when I have a conversation, I had a conversation with a Catholic a while back, and he was a lawyer too, he liked to argue. But I did ask him, what saves you? Is it faith in Christ or is it the sacraments? And he said, it's faith in Christ. And I said, then if, you, if that's really what you believe, then I don't see any reason why they couldn't be saved. All right, fact check these hands. I just don't want to, I just don't like to go, I'll, I'll have conversations with them, I'll talk to them, maybe it'll become evident that they don't have a relationship with Christ. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that you know the, the one true God and the son who sent him. Now think about that, that is, and I wanna put it up here, I wanna show you this, uh, this passage in John 17, three, because this is Jesus actually telling us what eternal life is. Look at what he says here. Um, he's praying, he's, this is the real Lord, he's praying, and then I he's arrested, and he says, and this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but I'm gonna say, away from you, me, I never knew you. So um, I, I wanna be careful, but you can't be saved by facts, um, by um, works-based religion. It just you just can't be saved by it. You are saved by the grace of God through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For the works God has called you to walk in. So there are works that follow, and baptism is one of those works that follows once we get saved. But it's not for salvation. All right. Say, thanks. Fact check these hands. I hope that helps, and um, I just encourage you to share Christ, and if someone believes that they're baptized within the Church of Christ and that's what saves them, then I would treat them like they need to know Christ and they need to really believe by faith, all right? So, and I understand this may be family members and you can, you know, you can find common ground to talk about. Um, you can pray that God would open up doors to be able to share with them. All right, so um, um, Jari has a question. Could the Roman centurion and Cornelius be one and the same? So I'm I think you're talking about the Roman centurion who said, truly, this is the son of God. Um, could he have been, the, um, have been the centurion's son? How else could Cornelius know about Jesus? Okay, so yeah, or, I mean, there's three centurions, right? There's Cornelius, who's the first Gentile saved, or one of them. Um, there's the Roman centurion, at the crucifixion of Jesus. And then there's the centurion in Capernaum uh, who talks about authority. I have, I'm a man of authority and you just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled and said, I, I have not seen such faith in all of Israel. We don't know whether or not these are the same. Uh, possibility, I think it's an outside possibility but a possibility. How else would he have known of Christ? Because he's a genuine, he is genuinely one who's seeking. And we have nothing in this passage in John chapter 10 makes us think that Cornelius has had any, any uh, kind of a idea about the Messiah. He believes in God. And um, let me just go, I wanna go here and I wanna read um, Acts chapter 10, just the first few verses here. And you'll see he doesn't, he just believes in God. He's like the, the Ethiopian eunuch who was Jewish. He has a belief in God, but he's a Gentile. And he's trying to follow the Jewish God. And he doesn't know anything about 
Jesus as far as we know, not by the text. It says, uh, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion who was called, uh, who was um, called the Italian regiment, a centurion of what is called the Italian regiment, a devout man who feared God with all of his household, who gave alms generously and prayed to God always. So we had this relationship with God, but he didn't know about Jesus. So what did God do? God sent Peter to him. And God res and, and, and this, I think, there are people out there that are ready to hear God and God sends them to the right place or sends someone to them. Um, they end up in church um, and, and those kind of things. So I don't think that the centurion had to know about Jesus. The centurion in Capernaum had probably heard, saw the miracles and he trusted him and believed him and had faith. Then this centurion Cornelius, if he's a different centurion, just believed God and was following Christ. And we get an example here of how people are moving to salvation, that how God draws. And that's why we find out when we're sharing with people, often they're hostile in us being able to share with them because they're morally don't want to follow them. But God plants seeds and gets the heart ready. And then at times, they're just ready to receive the Lord. So there's a part two to your question, Jari. Um, Jari says, part two with the centurion, how did he know God was the healer through Jesus? Yeah, well, Capernaum was one of the places where Jesus had done many of his miracles. So the centurion probably heard, saw, word of mouth, people told him what Jesus was doing. And so when his uh, servant got sick, then he saw Jesus coming and he went to him and asked him to be able to heal. So that's how I believe that the centurion knew. Um, most of the miracles Jesus did were Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. So these are towns that are in a small little region. And it's just interesting, most of the miracles were done there. There were only two miracles done in Jerusalem. That was the healing of the blind man in the Pool of Siloam and the paralyzed man in the Pool of Bethesda. But most of them were done in and around the Galilee, which there had been a prophecy that Galilee would be a place where there would be a great light. Okay, thanks, Jari, for your question. I appreciate that. Um, so, Psychman says, Psychman, good to see you, by the way. Psychman says, question, why should a Christian in a loving relationship with God fear him? How about that guy in 1 Kings 13, 16 through 25? All right, so Psychman, I had answered this question in the very beginning. I'm just going to give you a quick rundown with it. If I'm in a relationship with God, a loving relationship with Him, I'm in a loving relationship with God. I try to keep short accounts with Him, but I still have a sin nature. I still can be self-deceived. Sin is deceptive. I can find myself, if I don't have a fear of God, going down the wrong path, doing the wrong things, instead of asking God, like the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me, and know my way, see if there's any wickedness in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So we, we know that pride is in the human heart and that I could easily think that I'm okay when I'm not. And that's why the Bible talks about this deceptiveness of sin, the deceptiveness of our own hearts, and um, that, that we can be self-deceived. And the devil is a deceiver. So it's a triple whammy that makes us want to live within that fear of God. I still have a fear of God. I... I still have 
ungodly desires that I have to fight against like anybody else. And we all do. And if, if there's anybody that says, not me, I don't have ungodly desires anymore. I'm sorry. I just don't believe you. We're all the and that's because the Bible says everything we go through, we have in common. And it is the fear of the Lord at times that keeps us in that right place. Now, let's take a look at your person here in 1 Kings 13. I'm not sure who this is. So, we're going to go ahead and pull it up. And thank you, uh, Psych Man, for putting the reference in. All right. And let's go ahead and 1 Kings, I want to make sure I'm in the right place. 1 Kings 13, 16 through 25. Okay, I'm there. So, let's take a look at this. Uh, so, it says, and he said, I cannot return. Hmm, what is, let me look. Let me take a quick look on what this is. I like before I start to read it, right? Well, the death of the man of God. Yeah, this is an, yeah, this is an interesting passage. All right. Um, so, there, I'm trying to remember all the details of this account. So there is a man of God who was told by God not to go a certain way. Then there's another guy who lies to him and tells him God told him to go that way. He listens to the man. I think he ends up dying because of that. Let's see if we can, if we can get that from this passage here. Um, and he said, I cannot return with you nor go with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, your um, Brother Lord, you shall not eat bread or drink water there, nor return by going the way or coming. And he said to him, I too am a prophet, as you are. An angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you uh, to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. Uh, he was lying to him. So he went back with him and ate bread at his house and drank water. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back and he cried out to the man of God whom was from Judah saying, thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and not kept the commandment which the Lord God commanded you, but you came back to eat bread and drink water in this place. The Lord said, eat, um, eat no bread nor drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. So it was after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom had brought back um, uh, when he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse was thrown by the side of the road and the donkey stood by and watched. So the lesson from this account is that when we have God's word and we're given it, and this prophet knew he had been given God's word, that somebody can't come and tell you something different to follow that. We want to do what God says. We want to follow the scriptures. And if somebody comes along and says, well, this is what God told me, that we still follow what the, what the scriptures say. Um, that is a heartbreaking passage. And um, there's a lot of nuances in it when, as I read through there that I couldn't stop and go over. Um, so let me go back to your question, psych man. Um, why should a Christian in a loving relationship with God fear him? How about the guy in First Kings? Yeah, so there you go. Um, right on, uh, psych man. This is a guy who should have feared God, but didn't fear him. And um, yeah, so 
you're saying this guy's an example of somebody who knew God, but still should have the fear of, of, of God in him. So thank you very much, Psych Man, for <clears throat> bringing that up. Uh, I agree with you. That's a perfect example. All right. Uh, let's see. We have a question from Sally Richardson. Sally says, um, how do we begin to cultivate the fear of the Lord? Pastor Robert, please. Um, I think if you as a believer don't have any fear of God, then I would, I would say we need to go back to the passages that give us clear warnings about how we're supposed to live and, and what we're supposed to do. Um, I think of, of warnings like, don't love this world nor the things of the world. For if you love this world and the things of the world, it's enmity with God. Uh, passages that say that a desire to be rich has caused many to be shipwrecked in their faith. And I don't want to be shipwrecked in my faith. So the fear of the Lord makes me deal with the desire to be rich inside of me or loving the things of the world. So as we're reading the scriptures, and you don't have to go very far before you start finding things that we as Christians are supposed to be doing, then we have that fear of the Lord. Think of this. Think of the people in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 who were not taking communion properly. They were going in, they took communion differently than we generally do. They would go into a house, they would have a meal, they would take communion together by eating the food and drinking the wine. Some people were getting there early, earlier, drinking, eating all the food and getting drunk on the wine. And Paul said, for this reason, some of you have died and some of you are even sick. They had no fear of God and they should have had a fear of God that we want to do what God wants us to do that is right. And if we can cultivate that fear, knowing the mercy of God, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, all of that is really good, but also making sure I'm living the way that I'm supposed to be living. And the fear of the Lord can help us do that. So hopefully that's helpful in how to cultivate uh, the fear of the Lord. I would say... Um, in your quiet times, when, when, you're re when you're reading your Bible on your own, read it looking for things that you are told that God wants you to do. And we want to live a life that is pleasing to Him. And I think that may cultivate a healthy fear of the Lord. Remember, you could have an unhealthy fear of God as well. If you think that God's going to condemn you, that, that's unhealthy. If you say, I sinned and I need to make things right with God so that God doesn't discipline me. And there's another reason to, to have the fear of the Lord. The Bible says that the, the disciplining of the God is, is grievous in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, but it brings forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And so if I would like to not go under the discipline of God, doesn't mean I'm going to lose my salvation, but it means that I'm just going to be disciplined by God. Um, and I want to just read this passage to you, and it may help to really cultivate that. 
It says, For consider him who endures such hostility against sinners for himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not re yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to us as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as a son, for whatever son is there whom the Father does not chasten. But if you are without chastening, of which all of you have, become partakers, then you are illegitimate and no sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid respect, them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for the few days chastened us, which would seem best to them, but for our profit, that we may be partakers of holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful at the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So even understanding the disciplining of God, that God brings into a genuine Christian's life, that I want to be tender. Um, I think about disciplining kids. And if a kid is hard and not open to discipline and correction, then, then you end up taking more away from them. You end up disciplining them in a harsher manner. And if we are soft and tender towards God, then we don't end up getting disciplined the way that others do. All right? So I think that's a great, a great question. And hopefully um, those couple of things, knowing your own heart, knowing the purity of God, knowing that we are disciplined by him may help to cultivate that fear. All right, Sally, if you have more questions about that, you can ask a follow-up on it. All right. So we have a question from Rod. Um, Rod says, what about our own salvation with fear and trembling? Do we sometimes hide behind not legalism? Where do we draw the line? Yeah, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Let me see if I can remember where that's at. Um, Just give me a second here. Let me go. Philippians 2, is that it? Yeah, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So let me go ahead and go there. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. All right. Uh, so let's just go ahead and go here, and we'll, we'll look at this, and we'll, we'll see if we can answer that question, Rod. Um, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do, uh, and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Okay. So he's not saying, he didn't say here, go out and do works to be saved. He said, work out your own salvation. Let me, let me give you what I think this is saying, 
rod, and then I want to I want to I want to address two different issues here that you talked about. All right, so working out your salvation with fear and trembling is me making sure I'm saved. So the Bible says in John chapter one that if by this we know that we know, or maybe First John, John chapter two, by this we know that we know Him, that we keep His commandments. And so if I'm not keeping His commandments then I want to go back and evaluate, have I had a genuine faith, saving faith response to God? Has God drawn me and did I trust in him by faith so that I want to do what he wants me to do? I want to live the way he wants me to live. That's the evidence by which we know that we are in him. And so I'm working out my salvation. Now, I don't, I'm not in works doing it. I'm making sure that I have genuine faith, the genuine believing faith, because it's possible to have faith in God, but not a saving faith, a faith that trusts him. So, so we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. The second thing you say here, do we sometimes hide behind no legalism? I, th I think we do, but that's a different issue. It's not an issue of salvation. It's an issue of what uh, it says in Romans chapter 6, which is, let me see if I can get there quickly, um, which says, um, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So, we know that when we come to Christ, there are works that follow. Even that great passage, uh, in Ephesians that says that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, that we could live in the works that God has called us to. And I'm going to go there in a moment, but I just want to kind of go back over this again, all right? So this is what shall we say, this is Christians, shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? No, because by faith I've come to Christ and now I want to do what God wants me to do. And so I don't want to continue in sin. I want to turn and repent from them. Certainly not. How we have died to sin live it any longer. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I think that's identifying with Christ. Let me go to one more passage here to look at this. And this is the passage out of um, Ephesians that I think we, we know well and I quote often. It's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And let me, I'm glad I'm not doing it with, uh, let me get there. Because this is, um, just listen to how this is worded when it comes to works, okay? So, it says, for by grace you have been saved. That's God completely. I can't do anything to get saved. Nothing. The only thing, my only part in salvation is receiving the free gift of eternal life. And that's not meritorious. Meaning there's no merit to me taking God's gift. So I'm saved by the grace of God. God sent his son. He did all the work. He drew me. And now he offers me salvation. Okay? And I'm saved through faith. That means I trust in faith. The just shall live by faith. So my receiving is trusting him. It's not just having faith that God exists, but it's having faith that Jesus died for my sins, rose from the dead, and I now have eternal life through him and that not of yourself. So, it's by faith, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, so it's a free gift, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But then look what it says. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So, this passage isn't saying we don't have works. 
It's saying works are the evidence or the fruit, or they are what follow genuine saving faith. And this is why James said in the book of James, show me your salvation without your works and I'll show you my salvation by my works. Because works become evident, because I'm saved by the grace of God through faith, not of works, lest I boast. And then it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay? So, yes, I do think that, bringing your question back in here again, I do think it's possible, and let me go over here, I do think it's possible that uh, we could hide behind, I'm not legalistic, and end up sinning. So Paul said, don't let your liberty become an occasion for sin that could end up being, being disciplined by God. But it's not a salvation issue. It's the works that follow it. If you think that the works like, I mean, all, all of these groups are the same. They're, 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 they come out of the American cults and they're all work-based. Whether you believe that speaking in tongues saves you and then you're saved, or, or going to church on Saturday saves you and then you're saved, or uh, getting baptized and then you're saved. All of those things cannot save you. But, but we go to church, not necessarily on Saturday, we are baptized, and if you, have, if you believe in the gifts and you ask for the gift of tongues, you speak in tongues, but not, and those may be things, works that follow salvation, but they are not salvation themselves. Okay, and um, but 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 a good thought, and um, so working out our salvation with fear and trembling, yeah, um, that's not works. You're just saying I want to genuinely make sure that I know Him with with fear and trembling. It's also a great verse for the fear of the Lord too, right? Which we were talking about. Okay. Um, so we have a question uh, given to us by Keith. Keith, good to see you. Thanks for moderating here today uh, from Pokey. Pokey says, um, what will the timing be of the two witnesses on earth to drop in three and a half years in? And who are they in your opinion? Blessings. Thank you, Pokey. I appreciate that. Um, so we've got, wow, we got several videos on the two witnesses and the different theories of who they are. Keith, if you can go find the short, our hot topic on the two witnesses. So I think that was released just two or three weeks ago. Uh, and then we have a long form teaching on it in the book of Revelation. And I think that's in chapter 11. Um, and in that pokey, I'm going to cover, I will cover what different people believe about who the witnesses are, why I believe there, there, there are certain people, and I'll tell you who I think they, they are in a moment, but I cover it in detail, okay? Um, the timing, they do what they do on the earth for three and a half years, and then they are killed, and then they are brought up into heaven. Some believe it's in the beginning of the tribulation period. Some believe it's at the end of the tribulation period. Um, I think this is the second half of the tribulation period, but I don't know that there's anything that we can be dogmatic about it. So we can say, I think, right? It's okay to do that. When we get super dogmatic about things, there's problems. So the only time that I really want to be dogmatic about something is when I clearly see what it says and I believe solidly this is what it says and I can be dogmatic about it. When the scripture gives us that, 
I don't know about the time. Now also, who these people are kind of falls in line with that as well. But I believe it is Moses and Elijah. I think it's the testimony of the law and the prophets that Jesus said, um, uh, remember in, in Luke 16, with the parable or non-parable of the rich man Lazarus, they have Moses and the prophets. And then, then Moses and Elijah met Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And um, the works that they do are works that Elijah and Moses did. For those reasons, I think it's Moses and Elijah. Some think it's Enoch and Elijah. But I do go into much more detail and the evidence um, in that video. And if I remember right, the video, it's, um, it's not very long. The video is, is um, pretty short on um, the two witnesses. Let's see if I can, uh, if I can get there fairly quickly. And, um, all right. So let's me go to, I'm going to the hot topics here. Just take a look at it. Um, yeah, who are the two witnesses? It was, um, it was released two months ago. Um, it is eight minutes and 37 seconds. So that's probably your best. But then if you go to Revelation, then you're going to find that we have a full-length teaching on this where we really dive into it, okay? And and talk about those, and talk about who uh, these two witnesses are, all right? And there are different theories, right? And we, we understand that. Thanks, Pokey. I appreciate that. Um, let's see. Um, they also believe must be baptized to be saved. Yeah, um, and and even more than that, some of the Church of Christ believe you got to be baptized by them to be saved. So so they wouldn't even consider me to be saved because I was baptized not by someone who is from the Church of Christ. All right, but um, thank you very much. Um, all right, so let's just go ahead and take a look for our next question. It's good to see you guys here. If you have a question, then you can, can submit it through the comment section. Write the word question or a cue in front of it. Write your question out. Um, reread it a couple of times. Make sure it makes sense. And then add any references that you might have. And we'll be able to take time uh, to look in uh, to those references. So we have a question from Albert. Albert says, Some of you 2 Samuel 12a to say God was okay with David having more than one wife. One wife. How would you respond to that? Thank you, Pastor. So, 2 Samuel 12, 8. Uh, let me think if I um, know where you're going with this. 2 Samuel 12, 8. So, is this um, Abigail? 2 Samuel 12, 8. Oh, I know which passage this is. Yeah. Okay. This is good. Yeah. This is good, Albert. Let's take a look at this. Um, yeah. This is um, this is Nathan rebuking David after David has taken Bathsheba as his wife. So David stood. Talk about a reason to have a fear of the Lord, right? So David stood on his balcony and he looked out and he saw Bathsheba taking a bath. And he sent for her and brought her up. 
there's a power dynamic here. Um, did Bathsheba, did she know what she was doing? Taking a bath out where the king could see? Maybe. Um, I don't think she's ever openly rebuked. The child does die. And, and they come and they sleep together and she gets pregnant. Uriah, her husband, won't, he calls him back from the battle, but he's too principled. He won't go sleep with his wife while his, the rest of the men he's with are out in battle. And so David sends a note back with him, carries his own death note to Joab, put him out in the front of the battle and pull away from him and let him be killed. And Joab does it without even thinking. And then David looks like the hero takes Bathsheba as his wife. And David later on in Psalms 21, praying about this, says, when I was silent, my bones grew old within me. David was in this open, hidden sin that he thought he had hidden. Nathan came and told him the story of a man that had a bunch of goats, but he took his, his neighbor's pet goat, killed him, and, and, and fed him to people who came to visit. And David said, that man shall die. And Nathan said, you're that man. So God knows everything. And when we, we might hide from men, but God knows everything and God will reveal it. This passage is a great passage for us to go. We as loving God, having a, we, should, we should fear God. Otherwise, we end up doing things like this. Let me put this up on the screen here and you get what God says to Nathan and then we'll follow. I'll bring your question back up right here in a moment. And we'll look at that in the light of that. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you as king of Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives in your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in the sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with your sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, this sword shall never depart from your house. And, and David's life was never the same after these had happened. So when we go back, we want to try to read it as what, with, with what it actually says here. I gave you your master's house, which I take it as King Saul, your master's wives into your keeping, I don't think that David took any of Saul's wives as his own wives. I may be wrong about that, you know, but you know, you're trying to remember something off the top of your head. Um, if I were putting a Bible study together here, that's something I would go check, right? I would go to see, did David sleep with any of the wives? We know Solomon, you know, we, we know that, um, 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 it was the son who rebelled against him. Uh, I can't remember what his son is. Slept with some of David's wives. And this is, you know, the, the sword didn't depart from his house. And um, the one who was beautiful with the long hair. I can't, I can't remember his name. Um, so, um, into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if I've been too little, I would also have given you much more. So, when he says that would have been too little, is he talking about wives? Is he saying, I'd have given you more wives? Had, had that, you know, had that not been enough. And I'm not sure that he is. So all, out of all the things here, um, I gave your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel of Judah. So I'm not sure he's even talking about his wives. All he's saying is I gave you 
the wives of Saul into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. Ah, all kinds of hinges on whether or not David took them as wives, took some of Saul's wives as his own wives. And if that would have been a not, I would have given you much more. I think that God is speaking in a general sense here. That's the way that I would look at it now. I need to see what the connection is between his wives there. But I think that's, um, again, some, some, good ins, uh, some good insight here. And let's go back up here. We'll look at your question one more time. Um, was God saying I would have given you more wives? It was definitely the custom of their day to, ha to have more than one wife. Abraham had a wife and a concubine, and Jacob had two wives and two concubines, four wives total, right? Abraham had two wives total. None of these things worked out good. All of them worked out bad. And God said, for this reason, a man and a woman shall leave their father and mother, and the two should cleave together and become one flesh. Absalom was the name of the kid, his kid I was thinking of. So if David didn't have all of these wives, then he wouldn't have had his son, I think it was Amnon, rape Tamra, Absalom's sister, and then Absalom, and then ignoring it, and Absalom killing Amnon, and then trying to take over his father's kingdom. There's bloodshed in his own house. And he would have never have had that had he not had all of these wives. And, and we're not quite sure how many David had. Um, we never get a, con a concise number. It looks like somewhere around 12 to 14, which is 11 to 13 too many. But it, it created problems. And so um, I, I, I want to do one more thing here. Let me just read this really quick in a couple different versions. So it was um, verse 8, right? I'm going to read this to you first of all um, in the NASB. I also gave you your master's house and put your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Judah and Israel. Had that been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. So, I'm not sure that he's he's using wives here in that sense into your care. Um, I, I do. We just need to do a little bit of research on that to find out what that is. Maybe that's some work you could do, Albert, or I can do it if I remember it. My problem is that I forget about it. And if you came back, if you could come back, if anybody could come back and say, hey, I did research on this. I found out that David did marry some of Saul's wives. I, I don't think he did, but maybe he did. Okay. So thank you very much, Albert. Good, good question. I appreciate that. Uh, let's see. Um, yes, Pastor, that was was what I expected to hear. Um, yeah, Ecclesiastes says um, uh, that's what I was expecting to hear. Read and meditate on His Word because you want to get to know Him, and all else will follow. Yeah. Um, I mean, just as we are making our way through different passages, thinking of the fear of the Lord, um, we're getting more of them because the passage we just read was one uh, that ought to keep us into a good and solid fear of the Lord. Good to see you, Carl. Uh, glad to have you with us. Um, uh, all right. 
Um, let's see if you, uh, let's see, uh, another, any, I'm looking for another question here. I keep on thinking I got a question and I, and I don't have one. We have a follow-up by Rod. Rod says, um, follow-up, past salvation and sanctification. The Old Testament is full of things God does not like, yet some say immature Christians, has God changed his mind? Okay, let me just see if I can get your question again here. I know words are limited, right? On YouTube. Um, past salvation, sanctification. The Old Testament is full of things God does not like. Yet some say immature Christians. Has God changed his mind? No, God hasn't changed his mind. And if I'm understanding exactly what you're saying, Rod, is God still disciplines his kids today. And if we are doing things that are wrong. Now, remember, under the law, there are ceremonial laws we don't keep anymore. They're like the Sabbath day law. We don't keep anymore because Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus fulfilled the sacramental, the, the, um, the sacrifices in part of the law. He became the high priest. He gave the sacrifice. And so we don't do them. But the moral law has stayed the same but we now fulfill it differently. So where before we would read it and go, okay, I'm not supposed to covet and I'm not supposed to murder. But now if I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I love my neighbor as myself, I'm not going to take God's name in vain. And I'm going to not covet when something good happens to my neighbor. I'm not going to covet what they have. I'm going to love them. I'm not going to cover their wife or their, you know, donkey, their car, whatever it is. Um, but I'm going to be content with what I've got. So, yeah, I don't, God has not changed his mind. But what has changed is the way he interacts with us. We are, are not under the old covenant anymore. We're under the new covenant. And the new covenant is generated by love. We fulfill the law and the prophets by love. And there are certain parts of the old covenant that we are not under. All right? So, um, all right, let's just take a look here. Um, Jari says, I don't think they're Moses and Elijah for sure. Um, so <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Um, a little dogmatic, Jari. Um, it's, I, it's, it's okay to say, I think something is, or I don't think something is. Um, when we become really dogmatic, um, it becomes just problematic. When I talk about, um, fundamentalism. I'm not talking about fundamentals of Christianity. I'm talking about fundamentalism. Uh, we become really dogmatic about things that we don't have 100% evidence for. Like, we know the Bible says Elijah's coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And I can be dogmatic about that. I know exactly when it's going to happen, but we know he's going to come back. But as far as who these two witnesses are, unless we're told clearly, then I don't know that we could say 100% for sure. I think they are because of the reasons that I said. But, you know, um, that's, just, um, that's just having some humility, I think. I, I like that as well as when people give a word for the Lord. And I encourage people, when you have a word from God that you say, I think that God wanted me to tell you this. That way, because we know one prophesies and the other's judge. And it's, it's good to say, you know what? I don't always hear from God. All right? Um, so I came in the middle of your conversation there, Jari, so 
I don't even know really not what I was talking about, um, what you were talking about. So take that for what it's worth, all right? Um, so yeah, there's a lot going on here. There's a question by Renee. So Renee has a question. We have about five minutes left. So if you've got a question, you can get that in. I think we'll be able to get it, get to it. Um, do you think you'll ever have a live in-person Q&A? Like, yeah, we've had them before. We'll have them again. Where we do them at the church? Sure. Um, and um, we may do it uh, once we get to the end of the book of Revelation. Uh, we may just go ahead and take a Wednesday night and go over a Q&A um, on the book of Revelation and hopefully give some clarity. All right. Um, Susan says, well, question Renee Cruz, perhaps in Wisconsin in the fall. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm out of the loop on whatever's going on there. All right. Uh, let me just see if we got any more questions here. If not, we'll go ahead and wrap things up. Um, Jari has a question. Why was she called Bathsheba? Is this a coincidence? Some point out the name and numbers, significant numerology. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I joke and say her name is Bathsheba. She was taking a bath, you know. But I, I don't know. If there's no connection between bath and Bathsheba. And I'm not sure what numerology you're talking about. Um, so, I, yeah. So I, I really can't speak to that, Jari. I'm sorry. There are just some things that you can't speak off the top of your head. You, I'm just going to end up being wrong. And I, had, I, would like, I would like to um, limit the times that I'm wrong. I realize that I am wrong, but I would like to limit the times um, that I am wrong. All right. So let me just see here. We have one more question from, it was, is this Ecclesi, Ecclesiite? Ecclesiate? I'm not sure. I'm butchering your name here. All right. Um, we have another question from YouTube. Question. You said Jesus became our Sabbath. Could you please explain further? I am generally interested because the Sabbath is something I have questions about. Yeah, sure. And let me go ahead and just take, um, I can take the rest of the time here to answer this question for you. So, Hebrews chapter 4 says that Jesus is our rest. Jesus said that not one jot or titter of the law, tittle of the law, which is a dot across the T in English, will be done away with until it is accomplished. Now, you can go to the NIV Bible, the NASB. I think it's NASB, and you can see that where the word accomplished is used. So, Jesus was saying, not one bit of it's going to pass away until it's completed. So, why don't we have, if not one jot or tittle of the law is going to pass away, why don't we have a high priest today? Because under the law, you had a high priest, and the high priest had certain things they were supposed to do. Now, Hebrews tells us, we don't have a high priest because Jesus became our high priest. And why would you want an earthly high priest when we have a high, a high priest? And where Jesus can save to the uttermost because his sacrifices, were uh, the sacrifice of bulls and, boats, uh, bulls and goats could only cover, the sacrifice of Jesus saved us to the uttermost. And so we now have Jesus as our sacrifice, so we're not giving sacrifices. We are not under the law anymore because Jesus became the fulfillment of the law. And Jesus said, come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Hebrews 4 says, there is a, there is a rest that people have not entered into. And you could go back and read that. And it is speaking of Christ. 
being the rest that we are to enter into. So he becomes our Sabbath. So we don't keep the Sabbath. And Sabbatarians, they do exactly what the Sabbatarians did in Jesus' day. They, they accused the disciples of breaking the law because they took a handful of food, knocked off the chaff and threw it in their mouth to eat it. I don't think that that would have been work under the law but they made their own rules. And Jesus said, you're teaching the commandments of men as if they are the commandments of God. And, and they, they had their rules Jesus broke, but he didn't break the Sabbath in the Old Testament, even though Jesus said, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Meaning he could bring changes to it. And he did bring a change to it when he accomplished the law and we're not under the Old Testament law anymore, but we're under the New Testament. We're not even driven by the Ten Commandments. We're driven by love. Love tells me what to do. And so Jesus becomes our Sabbath rest. And um, um, let's see. Let me just see if. Um, yeah, so Jesus becomes our Jesus becomes our Sabbath. And you can go to Hebrews chapter four to read about the rest that some have not entered into. And um, Jesus ends up being the fulfillment of all of that. And so we don't have to keep the Sabbath. And again, Sabbatarians, they rewrite the law to make it going to church on Saturday. They get in their car and they fire up their car and drive down the road, but they're not supposed to make a fire on the Sabbath day. And they're making a fire when they start the ignition on their car and drive down the road. When you go to Israel among the, uh, the Jews that are trying to keep, um, the Orthodox Jews who are trying to keep the law as best they can, they will not start a fire, they will not light a fire, they, they won't drive a car. They'll stone cars that drive through their neighborhood if, if, if they actually go through their neighborhood. So um, uh, you could take a little bit more look at that. And then if you have any other questions about it, then uh, we can talk about it later. Um, he says, yes, I do believe we are required to follow a Sabbath. I just spoke to some Seventh-day Adventist yesterday and did not agree. Thank you, Pastor. Good. Um, I referred to Isaiah 1, 13, to take that, the father putting an end to all the rituals. Okay, yes, good. All right, so um, I'm out of time. All right, I'm, in fact, I'm late. So I appreciate you guys, love you. Stay close to Jesus. Um, we have the Unshaken Conference this weekend. Um, if you're in Tucson, you wanna go, you can still go to the Unshaken Conference and sign up for it. We've got over 800 people that are signed up for it. Frank Turek, Elisa Childers, Natasha Crane. We're gonna be covering apologetics how to give a defense for what you believe in Christ. It's an equipping conference and um, um, how you can have unshakable faith. And uh, so I'll be there and I will not be doing a Q&A this Saturday. And um, then Sunday, Frank Turk's gonna be speaking um, at the church and Elisa Childers is gonna be doing music as well. All right, so I appreciate you guys. Love you. Thanks for your questions, they're great. Stay close to Jesus. Um, walk in the spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And if you walk in the spirit, you're not under the law. And, and um, delight in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. If you delight in the world, you'll have the desires for the things of the world, but you delight in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. All right, I'm out, guys. Uh, we will see you later on.